Everyone else, if you have a Bible, I invite you to open up to Mark. We'll be continuing Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 11, verses 27 through 33 this morning. I invite you to follow along as I read aloud, starting in verse 27. And they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? And Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John was really a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Would you pray with me? Holy Spirit, we ask that you would be our teacher this morning. God, as we gather around your word, the word that you inspired thousands of years ago, we marvel that you still use it to speak today. And now as we consider this text this morning, would you be pleased to stir our affections for you, Lord Jesus, to stir our desire to follow you with a wholehearted obedience this morning. God, we pray that this would that we would not just see this as a way to, to merit our standing before you, but as a response to the incomprehensible gift that you have given to us on the cross. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We have seen a great deal from Jesus over the course of this gospel. Uh, I don't know if you were keeping track, but this is actually our 44th sermon in the gospel of Mark, and you're like, oh man, there's still a couple chapters left. How long is this going to go? We've seen quite a bit from Jesus in this uh, in this gospel. We've seen Jesus do a, a great number uh, of miracles. We've seen him cast out evil spirits. We've seen him heal the sick, heal the lame. We've seen him raise the dead. We've seen him speak and be able to control nature. We've seen all of these different things. And these stories, they, they inspire marvel in us just in the exact same way that they inspired wonder in the crowds that originally saw them firsthand. When we think of Jesus' miracles, I don't think that one of the first things that comes to our mind is the question of authority. After all, the last time I checked, you and I don't have the ability on our own to raise the dead. And so there's something special about Jesus, and that something special has to do with his power and has to do with his authority. But the question changes when we begin to look at Jesus' claims about who he is. And also, Jesus' claims on those who say they will follow him. Jesus doesn't take an ad out in the paper and say, hey, I'm interested in some followers, and if anyone has the time or the availability in their schedule, why don't you come on down as your schedule allows? No, Jesus says something completely different. It's a, it's a couple of verses that we've read many times in the Gospel of Mark. Bears repeating again this morning, Mark 8. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me, for whoever would save his life 
will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. If anyone, anyone, not just the upper echelon of his followers, not just the most devoted, not just the most serious, but anyone, if you want to follow Jesus, then you must come and die. There is no such thing as Christianity light. There is no such thing, uh, to use a term from C.S. Lewis in the, the screw tape letters, there's no such thing as moderation when it comes to Jesus. If you would follow Jesus, then you must pick up your cross and follow him. He demands everything from those who would follow him. There is no such thing as saving your life for yourself to spend on yourself when it comes to Jesus because then you will lose it. But if you lose your life, if you give up all rights to yourself for the sake of Jesus and for the sake of his gospel, then you will save it. And while we are very familiar with this passage here in the church, it's an astounding claim when we begin to think about it. Jesus demands that his disciples follow him and get rid of everything. And that doesn't really sit all that well with our anti-authoritarianism today in our culture. We don't like people telling us what to do, and so Jesus' words beg a question. Does he have the right to say that? Does he have the right to ask for that kind of commitment? That's a massive commitment that Jesus is asking for. It's not one that we should take lightly, and we we rightly need to ask, does does Jesus have that type of authority to ask everything of me? It's an important question. After all, if I were to stand up here this morning, and I were to say to you, if anyone wants to be a part of this church, then you must let me, Jordan, have a say and influence on all of your time, on all of your, time, all of your talents, all of your finances, over every single interaction with your spouse and your kids. You better think, be thinking about what Jordan would have you do in that situation. Every single interaction with your coworkers or your neighbors, you better be thinking about what I want you to be doing in that moment. Every single moment of your life, I want to say over it. And if I said that, please walk out the door. Call the cops. Because I don't have that type of authority. It's very clear that that Jordan can't ask that of you. It's an easy answer. But it's not easy when it comes to Jesus. Does Jesus have the right to ask everything of you, to make those types of demands of you? And that's what this morning's passage is all about. Jesus is confronted by the religious authorities of the day, and while we'll get into their motives here later and their troubling motives, the the question at its core that they ask is an important one. By what authority do you do these things, Jesus? Do you have the right to do these things? And this question of authority runs throughout the Gospel of Mark. It starts in in Mark chapter 1, Jesus' first day of public ministry. Uh, If you have a Bible, just flip back a couple pages and and you'll see what what happens. Mark chapter 1, verse 21, and it says this, And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, 
for he taught them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Right here at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, we have this amazement from the crowds at Jesus' authority. In fact, the crowds say that this is what sets Jesus apart from anyone else is because he teaches with authority. And Mark describes that Jesus' authority is the defining factor of his teaching. The scribes are the religious experts of the day. They're the ones who know the Bible backwards and forwards. And as such, you would think that they would be the ones who would teach with authority. And as we read in our text this morning in Mark chapter 11, that's exactly what they thought of themselves. They didn't care much for Jesus because Jesus didn't come to them for approval. Jesus didn't come from the same pedigree of background and education as they did. And so it is absolutely stunning here at the beginning of the Gospel of Mark in Mark chapter 1 when Jesus begins his earthly ministry that we see that Jesus, not the ones who believe that they had authority, but Jesus is the one who truly has authority. Getting ahead of ourselves, but you can see the root of their question in Mark 11 verse 28. They didn't give him authority. It didn't come from them. It didn't come from the temple system. They didn't authorize Jesus. And so where does Jesus get this authority. Jesus claims authority in his ministry in other ways. He claims the authority to forgive sins in Mark chapter 2. Jesus claims that he is the Lord of the Sabbath, that he is the one who is able to interpret the law correctly, Mark 2 and 3. He's the one, uh, he, he rejects these religious traditions in Mark chapter 7 and says, don't worry about those, let's focus on these things. He frequently begins his teaching with the phrase, truly I say to you, which doesn't necessarily mean all that much to us, but in that day it was unheard of because it was saying, truly, what I'm about to tell you is gospel truth. It is unarguable. This is an authoritative teaching. Truly, I say to you. He was speaking in absolutes. He was claiming the authority of God in his teaching. And in the passage immediately before this, Jesus cleanses the temple. He casts out money changers. He casts out those who are buying and selling in the temple. And this is a stunning display of authority. Now, unlike the Gospel of John, in John's Gospel, uh, he, he states Jesus' authority right at the very beginning. He says, this is who Jesus is, and, and this is why he can do all of these things, because he has this authority that's been given to him by God. Mark doesn't do that. Mark hints at Jesus' authority throughout his gospel, but it isn't until this moment where he breaches that question. He addresses it. He says, okay, now we're going to talk finally about Jesus' authority. Does he actually have the right to ask all of this of us to do all of these different things? And while he doesn't give us the answer explicitly, if we have eyes to see, and if we have ears to hear, we see exactly where Jesus' authority comes from in this passage. Remember where we are in the Gospel of Mark. We're on, uh, we are in this uh, passage or this section of the Gospel of Mark that takes place on Tuesday of Jesus' final week of life, right before his crucifixion on Friday. The passage right before this took place on Monday, where Jesus cleanses the temple, and now we're getting into this section where Jesus is in the midst of this interaction with the religious leaders of the day, and there's this building confrontation that starts here, and it goes throughout uh, Mark chapter 12, culminating into this moment where the religious leaders decide that they are going to 
do something about Jesus. So let's walk through the back and forth of this passage. First, we have the religious leaders asking Jesus a question, then Jesus asks them a question, and then they respond to Jesus, and then Jesus responds to them. So let's go ahead and look at this back and forth, the two questions, the two responses. And as we do that, just remember the overarching question of this passage is this. Does Jesus have the right to ask everything of me? First question comes from the religious leaders to Jesus in verse 27 and verse 28. The question is, Whose authority? And they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Text picks up with Jesus back in the temple. We know from Matthew's parallel account that Jesus is actually teaching in the temple. So here we have this moment. Jesus is walking with his disciples in the temple, and he's teaching the crowds, those who come around him. And so here is this moment where Jesus is doing this teaching, and then all of a sudden, this group of religious leaders approach him. Now, the makeup of this group is significant. It's the ruling council of Judea at the time. It is called the Sanhedrin. It consists of three groups of people, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. And the representatives who come and talk to Jesus here in this passage are the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. So here we have this moment where Jesus is teaching, and then all of a sudden, this segment of the Sanhedrin, this rep- these representatives of the ruling council of Judea at that time, come to Jesus, and they ask him this question. Now, The ruling council, the Sanhedrin, had limited political authority in Rome at that time, but they had a great deal of religious authority in that day. And Mark mentions the the priests, the the chief priests, the scribes, uh, the elders coming to him, because we see that this is the first of many confrontations between Jesus and the Sanhedrin. And it culminates in Mark chapter 14 with Jesus' trial, where the Sanhedrin actually condemns him to death. Now, the Sanhedrin's representatives, they come to Jesus and they ask him about his authority to do these things. The question, of course, is, well, what exactly are these things? In the context of of Mark chapter 11, it is undoubtedly a reference back to what Jesus did in the temple the previous day when he cast out the money changers. He cast out those who were buying and selling in the temple. Jesus, who, who gave you the authority to do that yesterday? But as we see in the Gospel of Mark, it is a broader question, one that that encompasses all of Jesus' ministry as well. Jesus, not only who gave you the authority to do that, but but who's given you authority to teach? Who's given you authority to, to do all of these miracles and all of the things that you have been doing in your ministry? Notice they actually asked Jesus two questions here in verse 27 and verse 28. First question is this, by what right are you doing these things? By what right? It's an important question. Jewish tradition of the day said that it was actually a capital offense to be a false authority in religious matters. So how Jesus answers this question actually is really significant. It is going to sign his death warrant or not. Now let me use an uh, admittedly silly example. It doesn't have to do with a death warrant. Um, it, It comes from my own life. When Crystal and I lived in Chicago, in the suburbs, uh, we, Crystal actually worked at the, the school that I was attending seminary at. And being married to 
a school employee certainly had its perks, things like, you know, I got a tuition discount. But the, the most important thing, that, the most important benefit that came with my wife working at this university was the parking sticker that she got. Uh, for those of you who are familiar with, with upper education, you, you understand that um, there, there are different parking lots that are for different classes of people. And so uh, what, what typically happens is there is the employee parking lot that is the closest to the school buildings. And then they put uh, on the next, you know, the next ring of the concentric circle uh, the guest parking lot because you want to put a good foot forward. And then sometimes uh, it's still in the same zip code. You have the student parking that is very, very far away. And one of the best parts of being married to an employee of the school was that I didn't just have the crummy little student sticker. I actually had the, you can park wherever you want, including on the grass because you have that employee sticker. And I tried not to take advantage of this for the most part. But there was one time, I remember one time, I, was, uh, I had an all-day Saturday class, and I had worked off-site in the morning, and I was running late, getting back to campus uh, for my class, and I had no option. If I was going to make it to my class on time, I had to park in the employee parking lot. And so I, I pull in right next to my professor. That's a really bad idea, by the way. Uh, it really, um, you know, when you talk about humility and things like that in the, um, in the context of a pastor, not a good idea to park right next to your professor. But as I'm getting out of my car, one of my friends, one of my classmates is walking up and, you know, they, they have to walk from, you know, a very far distance and they get to, to this building after all of this walking and they see Jordan just hop out of his car, grab his bag and start to walk in. They say, hey, you can't do that. Who gave you the right to park here? And that's the question that's leveled at Jesus. Who gave you the right? Where did this authority come from? By whose authority are you doing these things? We know the rules, Jesus. In fact, we made up the rules. And we know that you have not been authorized to do these things. So Jesus, what gives you the right? They follow that up with a second question. Who gave you the authority to do these things? And in that question is this implication. This reveals their, uh, their thinking here. By saying, who gave you the authority? They recognize that no one has the authority to do what Jesus is doing. No one has the authority to do what Jesus is doing on their own. You need someone to give you this type of authority. And the one who can give you that type of authority is God himself. And they saw themselves as the people who controlled who God authorized to serve him in his ministry. So the question, who gave you this authority? It didn't come from us. I'll go back to this uh, parking situation, this authority thing. My friend asked this question, how are you able to park here? They follow it up with a second question. Where did you get that authority to park here? Implication is the same. Jordan, we know that you as a student don't have this type of authority. We don't have that type of authority, that privilege, that right. So why are you doing it? And in that situation, all I had to do was point at the sticker on my back, and I probably did it with a less than godly smirk on my face when I did it. But I had the authority, the proof of the authority. I could point right to it. And the scribes are asking for the same sort of evidence from Jesus. They're saying, Jesus, where are your credentials? Where do they come from? 
To make matters worse, as I already alluded, they believed they were the only ones who could hand out those credentials. And they were acutely aware, hey, Jesus, we didn't give you permission to do this type of thing. So Jesus, what right do you have to minister like this? That brings us to the second question, Jesus' question of them. They ask, whose authority? Jesus responds, whose authority? Verse 29 and 30. Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. Now, in, the case, in case you think that Jesus is, is messing with the religious authorities at this point, that he's just playing games with them, this is actually a very acceptable way for a rabbi to respond to a question leveled at them. We actually see this from Jesus in, in Mark chapter 10, I believe. Jesus is interacting with the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler says, hey, must, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And what does Jesus do? He responds with a question. He responds back and says, hey, you know, what about the commandments? So this, this response from Jesus isn't playing games with them. This is a, a perfectly acceptable way for Jesus to respond with the religious leaders. And so Jesus asks them this question, and he's got two points or two purposes in asking this question. The first is he wants to tease out the answer. He wants to, to get them to begin thinking about what the actual answer to their question is. But even more importantly than that, he wants to reveal their motives. See, Jesus knows what their plans are for him. He knows that they've been opposed to him from the very beginning. They know that, he is a, that they are opposed to his ministry. He knows that they are trying to trap him. He knows that if he plays their game, he has two options. He can say, I got my authority from myself or from man, and then he proves himself to be a fraud. Or he can say, I got my authority from God, and then he's... Con- Guilty of blasphemy, according to them. That's what we see in Mark chapter 14. They accuse him of blasphemy because he says he got his authority from God. What's more, Jesus knows they're planning to kill him. Verse 18 of Mark 11. The chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. A couple chapters earlier, Jesus is predicting his own crucifixion, and he says this. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Notice the three groups that are mentioned there in Mark chapter 8. The elders, the chief priests, and the scribes. And yet with all of that in mind, that this group, they don't have pure motives. They're trying to discredit Jesus. They want to kill Jesus, make him disappear. And yet with all of that in mind, Jesus still cares for them. He still cares about these individuals. He still gives them the opportunity to come to a realization of the truth. And so Jesus asks them this question. He says, hey, before we talk about me, let's talk about John the Baptist. And here's the thing. If they follow Jesus' argument, his question to its logical conclusion, it will lead to their salvation. And that's a strong statement, so let me explain what I mean by that. Jesus' uh, question centers on the person of John the Baptist here. The religious leaders say, hey, where does your authority come from? Jesus says, before we talk about that, let's talk about John first. Where did John's authority come from? Now, from the very beginning of the Gospel of Mark, John is associated with Jesus. His primary role is not to call people to repentance. His primary role is to prepare people for Jesus. Notice Mark 
1, 2, and 3, and 7, and 8. As it is written in the Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. And John preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So John's primary role isn't to just be a prophet. It isn't just to, prepare, to, to lead people to repentance. It's actually to be a forerunner for Jesus, to prepare people for Jesus and his ministry. And so by turning the attention to John here, Jesus is connecting himself with John. He's connecting his ministry with John's ministry. His authority with John's authority. And however the leaders responded to John, that's how they should also respond to Jesus as well. And so if John was a prophet who was sent from God, he received his authority from God, the implication is the same, that the same thing is true for Jesus. In contrast, if John was not sent from God, but was a fraud with no authority, a different problem arises. The religious leaders were supposed to be the ones who stopped false teaching, and they didn't. They weren't doing their job. This would be like our elders who are responsible to guard the church from false teaching, turn a blind eye to that type of teaching. So which was it? If John is a false prophet, they are guilty of negligence of duty. But if John spoke for God, then so does Jesus as well. I mentioned earlier that if they follow this question from Jesus to its logical conclusion, it will lead to their salvation. What do I mean by that? Uh, I want to give you a story from earlier this week. Early, uh, each month I talk to a close friend who is a pastor in a different part of the country, and uh, we, we share joys, we share prayer requests, we share um, concerns, and, and we just want to be an encouragement for one, one another. And over the past several months as we've uh, talked with one another, the, the primary prayer request, or one of the primary prayer requests, when it comes to his ministry, has been this issue of church conflict and this issue with this family and church discipline. And I'm going to spare you the details. Um, it's not my place to share those. But essentially, uh, he had been trying to navigate some very difficult issues as a pastor who was, you know, in his early 30s and really un- trying, to, trying to seek God's will on how to do this wisely. And he'd been trying to, to navigate that for a whole long time. And of course, as he's telling me this over the last several months, I'm, I'm on his side. I'm like, yeah, man, you're doing exactly what you need to be doing. You're, you're, you're following, you're, you're trying to be faithful, and, and these people just aren't listening. And so this past week, we, we talked, uh, talked for the first time in a month, and, and I assumed that I'd hear more of the same. So imagine my surprise when, when he says, at the beginning of his update, Jordan, I've been wrong this whole time. Jordan, I've been wrong this whole time. In the past month, he had sat down with this group of people finally and had a chance to hear all of the things that they had been attempting to do to try to reconcile with the church leadership. And he said that this was the hardest thing that he had ever had to do. He's sitting in this meeting, and and it's a very uncomfortable meeting because there's tempers and there's tension and and all of these things. And and he said that, that At one moment, he was sitting there listening to this family, and they're expressing their hurt and their grief, and he got to this point where he realized that he had two options. On the one hand, he could double down on his position. 
He could refuse to admit that he was wrong and no one would bat an eye. Everyone else in the church would continue to support him. Or he could listen to him. He could admit that he was wrong. It was incredibly painful to do so, but it, if, he, if he could crucify himself and say he was wrong, that was his other option. And these two paths are before him. On the one hand, you have this path where he can uh, just ignore the conviction of the Spirit, this easy path, or the hard path to lay his life down, to admit he was wrong by looking at the logic, looking at the evidence that was presented to him. And praise God, he chose the hard path, but this beautiful thing. And as we were praying afterward, I just, I just said, thank you, Lord, that, that my friend has been, been obedient to you, that even though this is far harder, far costlier, that this cost him so much, it was the far better thing. And the exact same thing is happening here with these religious leaders. Jesus' logic is airtight. They know it. That's why they don't answer Jesus' question. Jesus' logic is airtight, and how they responded to John is proof, is, is evidence that, hey, you know what? They thought that he was a prophet. They didn't stop him. They didn't do anything to stop him. And they can do one of two things. On the one hand, they can do the easy thing, and they can just ignore what Jesus is telling them. They can ignore the evidence, and they can say, you know what, forget it. Or they can do the hard thing. They can say, you know what, we're going to lay down our pride. Yes, the evidence, the logic points us to the fact that you, just like John, were sent from God. They could crucify their flesh. They could come to Jesus in repentance. They could come to Jesus in faith. They can say, hey, you know what? We see now that we are wrong. They could confess it all to Jesus and find mercy with him. Even in this hour of confrontation, we see Jesus extending mercy. It's this beautiful picture that there's still grace and an opportunity to repent. How do they respond? The response is simple but heartbreaking. We cannot say. Verse 31. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. Plain and simple, they refuse. They choose the easy thing. They will not answer Jesus because they know the implications of giving Jesus an answer here. They do not believe that John was sent from God. That's what their actions showed, that they didn't believe that he was sent from heaven. We, we, they did not believe that, that the people were right, and yet they still feared the people, and they didn't want to undermine their own position. Because in being inactive toward John, not doing anything with John, they, they actually implicitly approved of him. But if they say that John received his authority from heaven, which is what their actions showed, then their hypocrisy is exposed. They know it. Their actions toward John and Jesus, they're, they're different and they cannot be because they both received the authority from the exact same place. They'd be forced to confront their sin, their hypocrisy, and lead to repentance and faith in Jesus. 
And if they answer the other way and say, you know what, Jesus, John received his authority from man. Their hypocrisy is exposed in a different way. If they believed that John was a false prophet, they did nothing to stop him, then they would have been guilty in a completely different way. Negligence of their duty. And so they simply respond with a cop-out. We do not know. The greatest desire of their heart isn't to follow God. It isn't to honor God. It is to hold on to their powers, to maintain this image of, uh, that they've constructed within themselves of those people who, who have it all together, who are in a position of power and authority. And so they, they ignore Jesus and the offer of salvation here in this moment. They choose a lie rather than repentance. How does Jesus respond? If the religious leaders answer Jesus' with Jesus's question with, we cannot say, Jesus responds his with a hard truth. I will not say. Verse 33. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Why does Jesus refuse to answer the question of the religious leaders? First, he actually does answer them. If you look in the next uh, passage, what we'll be looking at next week, Mark 12, it's actually the answer to this question. The parable of the tenants. If you look at Mark 12, verse 6, it says this. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. In the context of this passage, he's being sent from the father. And of course, the father in this parable is God. And, and he's being sent. He's received his authority from the father, from God. Jesus answers them. At least he will next week. But where does this authority come from? Well, he's the son. His authority comes from the father. Jesus have the right to ask all these things, to do all these things? Of course he does, because he is the king's son. He is the heir to the throne, and as such, he has a king's authority. He has all authority. But also at the same time that Jesus does answer them, he, he also doesn't answer them explicitly because he's not going to play games with them. He's not, he refuses to play these games with them because Jesus refuses to, to play games with those who aren't honest with themselves. We're just living this lie. Who aren't willing to own their own hearts, aren't willing to own their own attitudes. He's not going to waste time with these people who are so consumed with a desire for appearances that they won't even be honest with themselves. And so he's extended this opportunity for repentance. They've rejected it. And so Jesus says, all right, this isn't getting anywhere. You've doubled down. It's time to move on. And so as we come to the end of this story, this story of questions, we cut we come to a question for ourselves. Does Jesus the king have the authority of a king in your life? Does Jesus the king have the authority of a king in your life? The message of this passage is pretty clear if you're willing to see it. Implication of Jesus' question with the religious leaders is that he is a sovereign king. And he has all the authority of a sovereign king. He has the right to do anything. He has the right to demand anything. He has a right to ask anything of anyone who would follow him. And so ask yourself, is that true of you? Does Jesus, the king, have the authority of a king in your life? Let's consider three implications from this question. 
that we see in this passage. First, a religious background won't save you. A religious background will not save you. It's abundantly clear from the passage. Those who, who came with the right religious background, uh, those who are those who stood in opposition to Jesus. The ones who had all the right letters next to their name, those who had all of the credentials, were those who stand in opposition to the king. If it's, it's the religious leaders who stand in opposition to Jesus. It's not the irreligious. These are the people who know the Bible like the back of their hand, and yet they don't let it transform them. They don't let God use it to make them more willing to repent. Now, don't get me wrong. Religious background can be a beautiful thing. It's, I have three kids. It's my prayer that they will have the most boring testimony that there ever is. That 20 years from now, they get asked, hey, how'd you become a Christian? Like, I don't know. I've always been a Christian. I've always been a part of the church. A religious background can be a beautiful thing. Being saturated in the faith from a young age is a beautiful and good thing. It's one of the reasons why we prioritize that here at our church. But that background isn't going to save you. Those letters, that knowledge, getting first in, in Bible trivia, that's not going to save you if you don't let the Spirit of God transform you. If you're unwilling to let Jesus the King have the King's authority in your life, a religious background will not do anything for you. A religious background may lead to faith, but it does not replace faith. A religious background will not save you. Second, beware of stubborn refusal to believe. This passage gives us this terrible picture of unbelief. Here's a group of people who are very religious, and yet they will do everything that they can to avoid obedience to the call of the gospel. They sacrifice the opportunity to believe on the altar of their own power, on the altar of their own ego. In your own life, beware of a stubborn refusal to respond to the gospel with faith, to respond to the gospel with repentance, to respond to the gospel with obedience. Similarly, this passive refusal to respond to when God is at work in your life, when he is convicting you, when his spirit is at work in your heart, when we do that, we're in the exact same dangerous place that they were. Because tomorrow isn't guaranteed. And yes, that means you don't know what tomorrow will bring. But even more than that, it means it doesn't know, we don't know if you will be able to respond and believe tomorrow. There's this powerful passage. It's found in Hebrews chapter 3. It says that if we ignore the prompting of the Spirit to believe and to repent and to obey, to, to respond to the gospel with faith. If we ignore it today, tomorrow's not guaranteed. Hebrews chapter 3. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living, the living God, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. When we respond to the gospel with faith and repentance and obedience, no matter how hard it may be, it will be easier the next time. We begin to build these habits and these patterns of responding with faith, and our faith grows just like a muscle when it is tested, it strengthens. And yet in the exact same way, if we ignore the prompting of the Spirit, we begin to harden our hearts. It becomes easier and easier and easier for us to ignore the conviction of the Spirit. And so this passage in Hebrews 3 says, 
hey, as long as it's today, respond. Don't harden your heart like they did in the rebellion. Encourage one another to respond to the gospel in faith and obedience and repentance today. Beware of this stubborn refusal to to, to believe. And final implication of this passage, partial obedience is disobedience. Partial obedience is disobedience. If Jesus is the king, as Mark is arguing, and if Jesus, the king, has the right to ask anything of you desires, and if Jesus, the king, makes demands of you as we see in the gospel, and you only partially obey, you only partially submit to his authority, you only give a portion of your life over to him instead of the entirety of your life, This is disobedience. Those of you who are parents know that this is true. If you ask your kid to do something and they respond with 50% saying, yeah, I I did that, you know, hey, don't hit your sister in the face or in the arm. And then you see them and they hit your sister in the face. Well, I didn't hit my sister in the arm. And to be clear, this is not an actual example. I just made this up on the top of my head. (laughs) I want to be abundantly clear. That's the first thing that came to mind. Maybe, maybe it actually comes from my own background, not my children. That's not, a, that's not obedience. That's disobedience. Partial obedience is disobedience. That's made crystal clear in the end of Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12 uh, continues this confrontation after confrontation after confrontation between Jesus and the religious authorities. This is the first of seven. And then we get to the end of Mark chapter 12, and, and we see this contrast Instead of disobedience, instead of this stubborn refusal to believe from the religious leaders, we have a beautiful picture of wholehearted faith. Mark 12, 41 through 44. And he sat down opposite the treasury and he watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box, for they have all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. That's the type of faith that the king delights in. I know it's not in the text there in Mark chapter 12, and we'll, we'll look at that passage here in a month or two, but can you just see Jesus' smile? as he's watching this woman, after a long day of confrontation after confrontation after confrontation with these people who stubbornly refuse to believe, and then he sees this woman who is nothing in the social stratosphere. She's, just, she's not worth anything, according to the religious leaders, and then he looks at her and says, she finally, she's the one who gets it. She responds to the king's authority with wholehearted obedience. She knows how much it's going to cost her. It costs her everything. And yet she responds. Does Jesus the king have the authority of a king in your life? I began this morning by asking if Jesus really has the right to ask anything of you. Ask anything of me and the answer is a resounding yes. The only question that remains is Jesus has the right to ask for your obedience. How will you respond? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for 
the message of the gospel, one that is incredibly bad news because it reveals to us our own wickedness and our own sinfulness. And yet as bad as that news is, it is even greater good news. That in the gospel we find mercy and grace for sinners such as us. God, we ask that you, our King, would help us through your Spirit to respond to you this morning in faith and obedience. That we would be a people who delights, even when it is hard, to follow our King wholeheartedly. And I know that each and every one of us has areas of our lives where we stubbornly refuse to just turn them over to you. And even in my own heart right now, as I'm saying this, you're, you're, you're pointing to the things that, that I don't turn over to you. And God, I, I ask that you would give us the strength to let go, to stop trying to save a portion of our lives because then we'll lose it, but that we would let go of our grip and that we would turn to you with wholehearted obedience. Help us to do so, God, not as a way to earn favor and approval from you, but as a response to the incredibly good news that you have given to us at the cross. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.